Good morning, gentlemen. It's really strange to hear the thunder rolling out there in the, in the early part of January. Strange, strange. This global warming is going to melt us all before it's over. Either that or the political season is going to do it to us. I don't know which one. Uh, gentlemen, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And while you're turning, let me say, uh, uh, Lon just mentioned that CLC is the 18th, 17th, 18th. I think it's actually the next weekend. I believe it's two weeks from this weekend. So it'll be like the 25th, 26th, the, the Christian Life Conference. And uh, it ought to be really interesting. We've got two guys coming who are very fine communicators and teachers. And they're going to talk about the end times. So, you know, Presbyterians don't do that very often. But uh, they're going to do it and what significance it makes to us. Uh, and uh, I know you'll find that very interesting. If you're not a second Presbyterian, which is about a little over half of you, uh, just rest assured you're welcome. We'd love to have you. You have your own church uh, uh, responsibilities uh, on Sunday probably, but if you'd like to join us for Friday night and Saturday morning, uh, there are two lectures on Friday night and two on Saturday morning, so it, it really is a full teaching weekend. Uh, please come and join us. As a matter of fact, uh, two weeks from today, one of the speakers, John Wood, my dear friend, uh, will be here to speak to us on, at Amen, so we'll look forward to that. Well, we are in First Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at the entire rest of uh, chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. And uh, one of you mentioned to me that you didn't realize we were even meeting last week. Boy, if you missed last week, you missed a humdinger, right, guys? Uh, woo, man. So, uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, you can get the tape or whatever. Uh, let's look at verse 8. And remember, we're, let, me, let me remind us of the context. If you go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 12, you know, Peter has just described... Uh, that we are God's people. We are chosen people, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And then in verse 11 and 12, he says, okay, you're aliens and strangers. Be sure you live such good lives among the pagans, verse 12, that even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Then Peter launches into how we're to do that. What kind of people are we supposed to be in this world? And we saw that, interestingly enough, he began with, our proper submission to authorities around us, whoever those authorities may be, and uh, that if you happen to be one of those in authority, you're also to be careful how you exercise that authority. And then when we pick up where we are now, he is still basically talking about how we live in a world that really desperately needs to see something that's different, that needs to see something that is of the Lord, and that's our role in life. So let's look at it beginning with verse 8. Finally, all of you, Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. 
But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Amen. Well, I'd like for us to think about this in depth this morning, and you'll notice our discussion questions are meant to help us go deeper with all this because we're really coming to the nub of how we make the reality of Jesus Christ clear uh, to those around us. And there are really two things here. There's something we're supposed to do, and then there's a set of motives that are supposed to be engendering this behavior within us. And we need to give careful attention to both because we've seen the Christian life is a matter of what we do externally, but it's also a matter of what motivates us. We do everything for the glory of God. That's a distinctive motivation. It really sets apart us as a people different from all the people on the face of the earth. So we want to give attention to what it is that we can do and why it is we would do it. And we must even be ready to say why it is that we're doing it so that we can have a clear signpost out there in this world that Jesus Christ is indeed alive. Clearly, what it is we're supposed to do is to love our neighbor. It's the love of neighbor that sets us apart and makes it clear that we are who we said that we are. Everybody in the world loves somebody. You love your children. You love your tribesmen, at least to some extent. You love your own ethnic group. You love your, your nationality. But Christians are those who love neighbor simply because they're neighbor. And this is taught in the Old Testament and certainly pressed home by our Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll look, he speaks, first of all, in verse 8 about how we are to live together in community. So let's talk, first of all, about love for the brothers. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Let's start with yourselves. And we know how desperately we need to hear this among us. Every one of us here can think about if you're involved in a church somewhere, or if you've been involved in the past, or if you've ever walked into one, uh, you can say, I've noticed some things that don't look altogether so hot. Well, that's exactly right. We know we need this word. And notice he says, finally, all of you. This is not something you delegate to the women in the church. This is not something you delegate to the elders or deacons in your church or your vestry. This is not something you delegate to the sweet old ladies who've been there 50 years. No, this is for you and for me, all of us. Nobody can delegate this off. He says, all of you live in harmony with one another. Well, let's just go through a list of about five things he, he uses, five adjectives to describe what our life is to be looking like within our churches and in the church at large. First of all, harmony, which literally means of one mind. Be of one mind. Of one mind? Are you kidding me? All you have to do is to, to look at the, this political season and take a vote in church. You'd have people voting. all. How can everybody be of one mind? 
Well, what he means here is not that we would be uniform in all of our opinions. He means that we would be unified in our minds and that we're looking for the same ultimate objective in life and that we have mutual respect for each other's opinions, that we can put our minds together. And, you know, we come from, I mean, it'd be interesting to poll this group. And some of, some of you are not involved in a church somewhere. Some of you are involved in different kinds of churches. But of those of us who go to church somewhere, we probably have about 30 or 40 churches represented here. And it'd be interesting just to talk about these interchurch relationships and what we say about each other. What do the Presbyterians say about the Baptists and the Baptists about the Episcopalians and the Episcopalians about the Catholics and so on? What kind of conversations are going on about each other? Rather than focusing on, on what we have in common, we so often are, are clear to show our distinctives. Why is that? A lot of it has to do with pride because we really want to think of ourselves as being better than somebody else. If we're going to talk about somebody, we really need to get to know them. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them. But it does mean that what the community ought to be sensing from us is a common mind about key elements. I told you about a guy who uh, I, was, I saw on the airplane and he, he noticed I was studying my Bible because I was desperately getting ready to give a lesson somewhere in another city. And he said, what brand are you? And I said, well, I'm Presbyterian. And he was Unitarian. And, uh, of course, Unitarians don't believe a whole lot. Uh, there I go again, you see. Uh, and so he says to me, why is it that you, you Christians can't get along? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you got all these got Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists and Episcopalians. He started listening to all the you know, denominations. And I said to him, you know, you really need to get, pay heed uh, more closely to where we agree than to where we disagree. And I suggested to him to read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. But it's interesting that those on the outside, their impression is that we're at war with each other rather than that we agree on some fundamental things. I remember the first time that I went to western Ukraine to evangelize, and this was right after the Iron Curtain had been opened, I guess, in 89, and then people started to travel in to the Soviet Union. And in western Ukraine, it's where all the missile silos were. So you didn't have too many westerners hanging around western Ukraine. So we were the first, I believe in a lot of the villages and towns we were going into, we were the first Westerners they had heard. And we had flocks of people, hundreds of people who had come. They would fill up the house of culture at night because every little town has a house of culture. And it would hold, you know, 250 to 400 people, depending upon the village. And, and they'd just pack it out. They'd be hanging out the windows, listening to the gospel and responding to the gospel. And one reason they were, were responding to the gospel they, they said to us, you know, all we, these are people that didn't go to church. They said all we ever heard from the Christians were that they were fighting over the property. Now that the curtain had come down and churches were going to be receiving their property back, they were fighting over who was going to get which property. He said that, that's all we ever heard from the Christians was who owned what property. And, you know, I wonder if we polled Memphian Christians what they would say they're hearing from us about. And sometimes our voices are are ones of disagreement rather than agreement. We really ought to be focusing primarily on where we agree, on who Jesus Christ is, how you can know him, and what difference it makes. Be of one mind. And when we get into church, our churches, and there we have a denominational particularity in all of our churches. So, okay, you got rid of all the people from the other denominations. Now you, you find, well, we're not of one mind here either. But there's a way in which we can deal with each other so that we focus on the things that are really important, the essentials of our faith, and we show respect when we can disagree on the secondary and tertiary doctrines of the faith. These things need to be discussed. To talk about baptism and church government and predestination, all these things, those are important conversations. They ought to take place in our churches. 
But they ought to be done with respect. It's not as though we're calling someone a non-Christian if they disagree with us on those things. And we need to make that clear. Paul says, look, be in harmony with one another. This is vitally important. It's vitally important for us in our churches. And it's vitally important for this community that they know that we, we are in love with each other. We are in harmony. Secondly, he says that we should be sympathetic. Sympathetic, really, the word you have in English is pretty much the way it comes out in Greek. It's to have pathos together. It's, it's to care about somebody else, to have caring or passion about the needs of another person. It's to feel what they feel, to have a common caring or common affection or common feeling, a common pathos for another person. And so often we, we move through life so quickly in your businesses and even, I have to admit it, in ministry. I have all these projects and tasks and the th- things that are supposed to be done, sermons that are supposed to be preached. What about people? And so often we see people as interruptions and we forget people are the reason that we're here. And so we've got to be careful that our sympathies are alive and ready to be engaged And so often you're moving so fast, you find somebody in your workplace that has a need, you don't even stop by their desk and say, hey, tell me what's going on with you. There ought to be sympathy. They ought to sense that sympathy from the church, that we're listening to each other, we care for each other. And certainly for those of us who are married, you know how important it is that our wives feel sympathy from us. You can test yourself sometime and just say, honey, do you think that I understand what you're saying? No, of course not. You don't understand what I'm saying. Well, explain it to me again. And let me see if I can say it back to you. And see if you can say it back to her in a way that she says, you know, I think you got it. Just try it out sometime and see if your wife is really experiencing sympathy from you. And how can you show it? Show it by giving a listening ear and not by reading the newspaper like this while she's talking. You know, put the newspaper down. Turn the... At least turn the sound off on the TV and turn toward her. Yeah, it's amazing how, you know, we'll watch the UT Ole Miss basketball game last night. This is all too personal. And our wives will be talking to us and we're trying to watch the game at the same time they're trying to explain something. You know, that's not considered sympathy by your wives. I want to tell you, I have recent evidence to that effect. You've got to turn the sound down, first of all. You might even have to turn the program off and catch the latter part of the second half. I don't know. But... Sympathy needs to be communicated. And I'm telling you, people walk into your, the churches where some of you are going, and they sense whether it's a sympathetic church, whether they're getting your ears or not, whether they're getting your attention. It's a habit that we develop. And the Apostle Paul says that we need to be sympathetic. You know, I think that this thunder and lightning is just to emphasize what I'm saying. Thank you, Lord. So be sympathetic. You remember that. Well, boy, when he said sympathy, thunder and lightning came down out of the skies. So you better go home and be sympathetic. Notice, thirdly, he says love is brothers. And the word here in Greek is just Philadelphia. You know, it's the word from which it means brotherly love. And Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Everybody knows that. Just go to Philadelphia and find out. Brotherly love. Gentlemen, look, the love that we have in the church is usually, at its best, a mere tolerance. And isn't it great that we tolerate old so-and-so in our church? And isn't it great that we get along so well, and we get along well as long as there are no conflicts? And then when we have conflicts, we start dividing off. 
Uh, maybe it's time for me to look for another church. Maybe it's time for me to look for another Sunday school class or another small group. Instead of really learning to treat each other like brothers. How do brothers treat each other? Well, they beat the stew out of each other, if I remember correctly. But then they stand up and would die for each other. Yeah, sure, they fight. They get in each other's face. Sure, they compete every once in a while. And they sin against each other. But with natural brothers, there is natural forgiveness. And what we're saying is, in the supernatural body of Jesus Christ, there has to be cultivated supernatural forgiveness and reconciliation. And this is something I want to commend to all of you in your churches. If you don't have a process to be reconciled to brothers, why don't you start one? And if you don't know how, uh, talk with John. John Coakley, you in the room? Okay. Talk to John Coakley right over there in the corner. If John uh, and some others in our church work on a reconciliation ministry where brothers get reconciled, I'm talking about with very significant differences. And it's not a perfect business either because we're imperfect human beings. But in our fellowships, we've got to have intentional efforts to bring brothers together so that we act like brothers. And if you don't know what I'm talking about or you know what I'm talking about but don't know how to get it started, please talk to John. You have a few minutes this morning, John. Hang around. Thank you. You just send me a bill for that, will you? You know I'll pay it on time. Yeah, sing Rocky Top. Yeah. Okay, so they won last night, but it was a close one. And on their own home floor. I turned it back on after all. After I listened, brotherly love. And Paul is saying, look, I'm saying to every one of you, I'm not just saying it to the elders. I'm not just saying it to the deacons. I'm not just saying it to long-term uh, members of churches. I'm not just saying it to people who have a very sweet disposition. I'm saying it to everybody. Treat the people in your fellowship like brothers. And if you had dysfunctional relationships with brothers, you're going to have to relearn brotherhood. But this is the way we're supposed to act toward each other. And uh, I just want to suggest to you, I know I'm challenged by this, and I suppose you are too. Let's take it to heart. This is the number one way in which we are going to show that Jesus Christ is alive, is that we deal with each other in a distinctively different way from the way the world does it. The world just writes us off. We don't write each other off. And then look what he says about compassion. He says, be compassionate. That is, the word here literally means good-hearted. And you'll find this in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. Be compassionate. That means let your affections go out for someone. Give your heart to them. Be generous. Be kind. Give to one another. Just like we would in family. And our families are all dysfunctional to some degree. But we keep giving. We're generous. We love them. We're compassionate. And then notice he says, uh, and humble. And then this is my specialty. I really have a, I, I really do well on this one. In fact, I'm really quite proud of my humility. Now, I, I've told you all before, I've been told on a number of occasions, Wilson, this is not your long suit. <laughs> I had a deacon tell me that one time. And uh, he's exactly right. Humility, which literally in, in the original language is just lowliness of mind. In fact, this term lowliness of mind in Greek thinking was not a virtue it was a vice to be lowly in mind was to be one who is not considered worth a whole lot isn't it interesting that jesus and the apostles are saying no i want you to take what they consider to be a vice and make it your virtue there's a lowliness of mind that is 
if we have lowliness of mind, we don't assume that our opinion is going to be the best one automatically. We listen to other people's opinions. We're able to say even in public we made mistakes and that our opinions were wrong. One of the dangers for those of you who are teachers, some of you teach Sunday school, some of you are preachers, some of you teach in other venues, some of you teach in your businesses. The danger of teaching is when you say something publicly, you're a lot slower to take it back. And that's the reason that teaching in the church is supposed to be for the mature, because mature teachers realize you're going to have to take a lot of stuff back because you say a lot of dumb, stupid stuff. And you're going to have to continue to repent even of things that you said that were incorrect. The only perfect teacher is Jesus Christ. So a lowliness of mind, being ready to be flexible and nimble and repentant, even in public if it's necessary. And those of you in public leadership, those of you who are in business leadership, you're going to have to have a lowliness of mind if you're going to be effective. Uh, because otherwise you're right because you're the boss. And that's a lousy way to run a business. And it usually is not as nearly successful as someone who knows and lets those around them know that their opinion is not always the right one and they desperately need help. So this is what is being said. Love for the brothers is our chief sign that Jesus Christ is alive. I may have told you before I was so influenced by um, Leslie Newbigin, who's now deceased, who's written several books. He was a missionary to India and then came back as a senior citizen to live out his days in his home, uh, England. But uh, Newbigin wrote a book called Gospel, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And in this great book that he wrote, he describes why the church is so significant to evangelism. He said the church is supposed to be that which arrests the attention of the world. He said, because in Acts 2, what you find is that people were asking Peter, tell us, brothers, what must we do to be saved? And Newbigin says, do you know why they were asking? Because there are people there with tongues of fire on their heads. That's why. And they said, tell us, what's the meaning of this? And Peter interpreted it. He said, here's why there's tongues of fire on these people's heads and why they can speak in languages they never studied. Here's why. Number one, the Jesus that you crucified has now been made Lord in Christ. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And secondly, he with the Father poured out what you now see and hear. It's, it's a gift from Christ and the Father who has poured out the Spirit. And that's the reason these people are speaking in tongues. They're not drunk like you said you thought they were. They're filled with the Spirit. And so Peter gave an interpretation of this unusual sign of fire and tongues. And that is how people came to Christ. And we're told that 3,000 were saved in that very first day because they had to know the answer to these unusual signs. Now, here's what Newbegin is saying. What's the sign for today? It's the church. And he said, the reason that we're not having people ask us, tell us what must I do to be saved? We're having to go out there and convince them they need to ask that question. The reason they're not asking it, there's no reason to ask it. Because the church and the Rotary Club function about the same. There needs to be something distinctive about the church. And then they'll say, what makes you different? Tell me, how could I become one of those? How could I experience the love that I've never seen anywhere else like I see it in your church and in your fellowship? That, says Newbigin, is the reason the church is so vital. And I want to say to you, I think he's right. This is the reason Peter is stressing the point here. How do you expect to have any effect upon those on the outside if we don't deal with each other lovingly. And we know in this city still, 
we can find ourselves divided off into little groups. This group is sort of the, you've got a lot of engineers over in this church, got a lot of teachers over there, got a lot of professional people over there, got a lot of, you know, common laborers over here. you got African Americans over here and white people over there and Hispanics over here and, and Asians over here. And it seems to me that the church was made to break all the barriers and to make a clear demonstration to our city that Jesus Christ really is powerful. And he breaks down these barriers. So, for what it's worth, I believe this is the reason that the, the Apostle Peter is saying, finally, all of you, get involved in this. This is the mission of the church, to be a different, loving community. As Martin Luther King called it, the beloved community. But notice in love of neighbor that it, is, it doesn't end with ourselves. This love overflows to the community. They not only watch us love each other and reconcile our differences like nobody else, but they are going to experience love from us themselves. See how he puts it in verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Now, you could say, hey, I go to church and I get insulted and people do evil to me. But clearly he's speaking about the outside world here. If your church is that dysfunctional, then uh, join all the rest of us. But he's primarily talking about grace for the wicked. We have love for each other. We have forgiveness and grace for this world. And brothers, I really believe this is the real test of our love, whether we can love someone who is not loving us. I'd like you to turn with me. Keep your finger there on on 1 Peter 3. But let's go back to, to Jesus in Matthew 5. And let's see where Peter gets all this. Jesus speaks about murder. This is on page 1551. Jesus speaks about murder and he says, look, it's not just a matter of taking someone's physical life. It's a matter of being angry with them. And he's talking about brothers in the church. So Jesus teaches the same thing that Peter's just been teaching. We must learn to love each other no matter what. But then when he comes to verse 43 at the end of chapter 5, this is, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about outsiders. And look at this. You have heard that it was said. Where did they hear that? They heard it from the rabbis. Here's what the rabbis taught. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's fine to hate your enemy. But look at verse 44. Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm teaching. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Why? Well, here's here's what your Father in heaven does. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Did you notice that the rain that was hitting the roof up there was not divided? Okay, now this is just for the Christians. When the rain comes, it doesn't just water your garden. And the poor guy next door who's the Buddhist, you know, his garden didn't get any water whatsoever. Have you ever noticed it doesn't work that way? That is a sign of how God is now operating with all the earth and He wants us to operate in the same way. So He sends His Son on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then we get this challenge from Jesus. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? 
Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Back to 1 Peter. So you see that Jesus taught this, that our love is distinctive because this is is the very nature of agape love. Eros, E-R-O-S in the English, from which we get the word erotic, is a love that is based upon the value of the object being loved. For example, if I go and uh, observe some art at the Brooks Museum and I say, that's a lovely piece of art. I love that work of art. I love it because it's beautiful. But if I look at my enemy and I say, I love him, but I can't say I love him because he's so kind to me. He's such a wonderful person. I have such high thoughts of him. Where's this love going to come from? Not the object, but the subject. That's agape love, love that comes from the heart of the lover rather than being initiated and inaugurated by the beauty of the object of the love. That's erotic love. Now, gentlemen, what we're being taught in the scriptures is that God loves us with agape. And it's a good thing. If he loved us with the eros, nobody here would be loved. But we are all loved, not because we're lovable, but because he has a loving heart. So if we are imitating our father, just follow the line of reasoning. If we're loving like our father's heart, we are going to learn to love not because something is beautiful to us, not because something's attractive to us, but because of our own hearts. This is the reason that for those of you who've been married after 40 years and your wives don't look the same way they do in their in their wedding photo. You ever notice that? Neither do you. So if we love only because of the way someone looks, then we're loving them with erotic love. And that can fade very quickly. But if we're loving them with the same love with which we've been loved, it's love out of our hearts. And we love them graciously, just as they must love us, of course. Grace for the wicked. This is the real test. I had this test not too long ago. one of uh, our my colleagues in ministry, Susan Nash, uh, came into me one day and she showed me a letter to the editor in the Commercial Appeal. And it was a letter that was complaining about one of those big East Memphis churches that clog up Poplar Avenue at noon every Sunday. And that these churches really ought to do something about this outrageous problem of clogging up our streets and they're dangerous and you can't see around the corners and Somebody needs to tax these churches. I mean, it just went on and on. And then at the bottom, the person who sent the letter was a guy who played in our little orchestra two weeks before. And, and she recognized his name, and so did I. And we were, I was just astonished. This guy's taking us on. And I said, Susan, you say he played in the orchestra. Yeah, the operative word there is past tense, played. used to play. And Susan had a very simple response. She pushed the letter to the editor back toward me and said, you might want to reconsider that. You might want to reconsider the way that I and you often respond to someone who takes a shot at us. You might want to reconsider. Why might you want to reconsider? Because of verse 9. Because our job, our calling, he says, this, he says, to this you are called. My calling in life 
is to respond to nasty people with kindness. And the very way that I describe nasty people has to come out of the vocabulary. They're not nasty people. They may have done a nasty thing. That's our calling in life, to follow Jesus Christ. That's exactly what He did with us and what He does every day of our lives. We must learn to imitate Him. This is the real test. I'll never forget a guy came to see me one day. This was 20 years ago in my office to talk about ministry. And I was just curious. I said, tell me, how did you become a Christian? He said, well, I'm glad you asked. He said, I went to Stanford University and I played on a water polo team. This man was Asian. He was an Asian American. He said, I played on a water polo team. He said, there was a guy named Paul on our team. And in, in one of the teams we were playing, there was a guy who, who took my team, teammate's head and bashed it against the wall. And my teammate just went on playing. Played a very competitive game, but didn't wreak vengeance of any sort. And he said, I just noticed it, and I was very fascinated. He said, I came from a Buddhist background. That was not the way that we did business. And he said, I walked up to this guy afterwards and said, I noticed what that opponent did to you, and I'm wondering, why didn't you smash his head back? And he shared with me the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how I became a Christian. And you know how, how wonderful it would be if more and more people in our community would come to know Jesus Christ because they notice that we're reconsidering how we deal with the people around us. This gets very difficult. Obviously, if someone is mistreating you in business and has defrauded you, you don't expose yourself to be defrauded again. That's no favor to him nor to you nor to your business. And you have an obligation to your stockholders. But it's a matter of your personal vengeance toward that person. Can you drop your personal vendetta? And can you make it a matter of simply being a responsible citizen, a responsible CEO, a responsible business person to protect the interest of your stockholders, simply carry out your job without having a personal vendetta? And can you even take on as a matter of prayer, because Jesus said, pray for those who defraud you, pray for those who persecute you. And can you make them a part of your personal affection in prayer? This is the test. Grace for the wicked. So, gentlemen, this is the test. We spent most of our time looking at the test itself. That we would learn how to love each other deeply in Christian fellowship. And if you're not very involved in Christian fellowship, let me invite you in. And if you say, you folks look so messed up, I'm not sure I want to come in. Well, come on, Ben, be messed up with us. You think you're so hot. Come on in and we'll just struggle together. Let's learn how to love each other like brothers. And then let's learn, learn how to love a world that sometimes persecutes us. And remember that Jesus said, if they persecute you because of me, you are blessed. And it is our task to understand if we get wickedness from the world in a way that persecutes us because we're Christians, we are of all people on the face of the earth lifted up and blessed by God. We need to learn this deeply in our hearts. That makes us a distinctively different people. Now, we're going to take the rest of our time, the 17 minutes we have left, to look at the motives for this. Because we've seen that not only do we behave differently when we're in our right minds, but we behave from different motives. And we need to be ready to give an answer for those motives. I've often said to people who say, how can I be an effective witness? Here's what I'd say. Live the Christian life. Live it intentionally, knowing why you're living it. Get involved in other people's lives and be honest about what's motivating your life. If you do those four things, you're going to be a witness. Because if you get to know each other well enough to build relationships, eventually they're going to want to know what makes you tick. And if you know what makes you tick and you can explain it, you're going to give a witness. 
Because there's only one explanation for your life if you're a follower of Christ. And that is Christ. It'll come out of you. It'll have to come out of you just as much as if someone pokes you with a pen, blood comes out. Someone pokes you with a question, Jesus comes out. Eventually. What are those motives? Well, we're going to see the overarching idea here is the fear of God. We not only love our neighbor, we fear the Lord. And the word fear also can be translated reverence. We reverence the Lord. Now, notice, first of all, in verse 9b, that we were called to this so we may inherit a blessing. We are aware of our calling. This fearsome, awesome, holy, glorious God has called us to do something. He's given us instructions. He's called us to a certain life. And that's resting upon us. And our calling is to be persecuted so that we may be blessed. To walk in the footsteps of the, of the prophets and the apostles. To walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. To this we were called. You weren't called to be a banker or called to be a preacher or called to be a school teacher. You were called to be a Christian. And your occupation is a secondary calling that is, that is derived by inference and by Christian wisdom, hopefully. But you have an immediate, infallible calling to walk with Jesus Christ and to, and to suffer as He suffered and to love as He loved. Secondly, you'll notice in the second half of this citation, or rather in this first half of the citation of Psalm 34, that we are aware of His eyes and ears. Whoever would love life, Peter quotes uh, Psalm 34, and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Then look at verse 12. For, or because, or since, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Gentlemen, we are people who live consciously in quorum Deo, the Latin, in quorum, C-O-R-A-M, C-O-R-A-M, Deo, D-E-O. In the presence of God or before the face of God. That's how we live life. So we're consciously living in a way knowing that we've been called to a certain life and that He is with us, His eyes are upon us, His ears are, are around us, He hears our thoughts as well as our words. We're living out life completely in His presence. And, I, you know, I've said to you before, how would life be different for you today if everywhere you went, Billy Graham went with you? How would your language change? How would your business change? How would your kindness to your customers change? How would your thoughts about even your competitors change if Billy Graham knew everything you were thinking and talking about? Well, here's the, here's the bottom line. Someone more holy, infinitely more holy than Billy Graham is going with you today. His name is Jesus. His eyes and His ears are upon you everywhere. So we live in His presence. This is our motive. We have a calling and He is with us. Thirdly, this makes us fearless before men. Fearless before men. If you want to know how to deal with your own intimidation factor, if you want to know how to deal with your own insecurities, first thing you need to do is fall down before a holy God and realize this God is awesome. If you want to be really afraid, get afraid of God, and then you won't be afraid of anybody else. And this is the way it works. You see this in, in, uh, in um, Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 12, where Jesus says, don't be afraid of the devil. All he can do is kill you. Be afraid of the one who can kill you and then throw your soul in hell. There's somebody to be afraid of, someone who can mess with your eternal condition. 
And being afraid of God or being fearful of God, being reverent toward God, means that you don't have to fear the devil. He cannot destroy you ultimately. The only one who can ultimately destroy you is God. And if you get reconciled with him through Jesus Christ, there's really no one who can do any ultimate damage to you. You find this over and over again with uh, David in the Psalms. And as you know, David was constantly being threatened, constantly being chased by King Saul before he died. And look at what David says. This is when the Philistines had seized him. This is Psalm 56. And he says in 56.4, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? You need to ask that question every once in a while. What can mortal man do to you? And men have all kinds of weird behavior and passive-aggressive actions that come out of being fearful and being intimidated. And David refused to act that way because he refused to grant to another human being the power to intimidate him. Because he was only going to be reverential before God ultimately and only fear him. And when we start fearing other people and getting intimidated by them, we've taken our eyes off the Lord. You get it again from David in Psalm 27, that famous verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? If God is your light in the darkness, if He's your salvation from everything around you, then who do you have to fear? And this is important for those who live around us. That they see you liberated from all human fears. That you have your confidence in the Lord. And that you're not intimidated. And notice that this makes us confident in God's blessing. In verses 13 through 15a, he's saying, who is going to harm you if, you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. You're blessed. So you're confident that God's blessing is going to fall upon you simply because you're trusting in Him. Not because of your wit, your intelligence, your capacities, your attractiveness. You're trusting in Him. And then notice he says in verse 15b, you've got to be prepared to speak up about this. If we're going to have influence on the world around us, we have to show them how to live a life that is really liberated from all the bondages of this dark world. That we're free, that we're, we're joyful, we're blessed. We're confident in Him. We fear Him alone. And then when we're asked about it, we need to be able to speak to it. Look how he puts it in 15b. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Be prepared. You say, how can I be prepared? Well, can I give you a few suggestions? Begin. I'm going to give you three suggestions. If you want to be prepared to speak up. Number one, recount what God has done for you. Have you thought about that lately? You know, the, the song goes, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Count your blessings. Count them. And if you haven't written them out lately, why don't you do that? What are the great blessings that God has given you in your life? As soon as the gathering demoniac was exorcised of his demons, Jesus said to him, go off and go to seminary for three years, and then you can come back and talk about me. He didn't say that. He says, go immediately to your family and tell them what God has done for you. You are an expert on what God has done for you. You may not understand Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, but you know what God has done for you. You may not understand the hypostatic union between the human 
nature and the divine nature of Jesus Christ. But you know what Jesus Christ has done for you. You're an expert on it. So become expert. Get it down on paper. What has he done for you? If someone asks you, what's the key thing that God has done for you? Tell them. Because you thought about it. So you need to be prepared. He says, be prepared. He doesn't say, speak up. and just say any old thing. Don't just say, praise Jesus. Just, you know, any old thing. Hallelujah. Glory. No. Speak up with a prepared voice. Because you've thought about it. So first of all, recount what He's done for you. Secondly, study His promises for you in eternal life. He says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope. The hope. What is your hope? Why do you think you're going to heaven? What is heaven like? Study it. Think about it. What is heaven like? Why are you excited to go there? And what makes you think you're going? Get that in your mind. Be able to speak to it. You may not be a theological expert, but you're an expert on what you think. Get it down on paper. And thirdly, think about what difference this makes to you in everyday life. The fact that you know what heaven is, at least know something of heaven, and you think you want to go there, and you know you're going. What difference does that make to you when you've got cancer? What difference does it make to you when your relationship with your wife is not going so well, or when your child is on drugs? What difference does it make? You need to think about that. What difference does it make? Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. No matter when you're asked for about it, this makes a difference. So if we're going to be the signpost in the world by loving each other and being gracious toward them, when they ask us for the reason for the hope within us, now you've got to be prepared to speak up. You put the sign up. People say, what's the difference over there? Now you can tell them. You've got to be ready to speak up. So notice thirdly, not only are we confident and prepared, but we're gentle and respectful. If you look at 15C, he says something very important. He says, but do this with gentleness and respect. If we were to look for a good example, you'd certainly find it with Jesus before Pilate and Herod. He respected their authority. Another good example is Acts 26 with the Apostle Paul before King Agrippa. And if you look at the second half of Acts 26, you'll find some exquisite courtly manners by the Apostle Paul. Who is evangelizing the king? King Harry Agrippa II. And he does it so respectfully. Oh, king, I consider it a privilege today to bear witness before you because you know of these things about the Jews and the Christians. He acknowledges Agrippa's knowledge. And then he says, oh, King Agrippa, how I would wish that you might have what I have except for these chains. And when he's in conflict with the king, he doesn't speak directly to the king. He speaks to Festus about what he and the king are talking about so that it makes it less of a conflict with King Agrippa. You'll notice some exquisite courtly manners because Paul knew this. We stand up for what we believe. We're prepared to speak out for the hope that we have, but we do it respectfully. And people are made in the image of God whether they're Christians or not. And they are enjoying this rain and the sun that will come up later whether they're Christians or not. And the Father is giving what we call common grace to everybody in the world until He comes back. And we're to imitate Him and show deep respect for everyone made in the image of God. We're to listen to their opinions. We're to learn from them. We're to submit to their proper authority in the state when unbelievers are in authority over us. So we are gentle and respectful at the same time that we're crystal clear about what it is we believe and why. But with lowliness of mind, we communicate these things. This is what's being said to us. Keep a clear conscience, which will shame your accusers who are accusing you of all manner of wrong. And right now the church is being 
accused primarily of being self-righteous and strident in the public arena. Well, let's repent. Perhaps we have been strident and self-righteous in the public arena. I would suggest we have been. Let's repent. And let's make our repentance far more famous than our stridency and our harshness in public. And then let's let people say, what's made you all change? And we can say faith in Jesus Christ and repentance. Because that's the way He dealt with us. And we're sorry for what we've done. And then we choose a better way. That's what's being taught to us about gentleness and respectfulness. Lastly, we want to be resting in Jesus. So we are aware of our calling. We are aware of His eyes and ears. We are fearless before men. And we are resting in Jesus. Now why do I say this with these last five verses? Because what you'll notice is a pattern. He was put to death, made alive, gone into heaven. So we're talking about Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. And you'll see that in the text. It ends with, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. And he has angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Okay, we're coming back to the idea of submission. We started chapter 2, 13 with the word submit. We end chapter 3, verse 22, with the idea of submission. What is Peter saying here? He is saying, you can submit to any authority on earth because of this. One day, the entire universe will be in submission to you. Why? Because you are in Christ. And yes, when He was on the earth, He was despised and forsaken. He was persecuted. He was crucified. He was put in the tomb. Just like you're going to have happen to you. But then, gentlemen, He was raised from the dead. And so are you being raised from the dead. And He was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And so shall you be exalted to the right hand of the Father. And He now has in submission to Him all angels, all authorities, all powers. And one day, you too will have all angels, all authorities, all powers in submission to you. Now, it's with the confidence of men who know that they're princes waiting to be crowned who can then submit to the authorities in this life which are lowly authorities compared to the authorities of the future. And we can submit ourselves to it. We can take on the persecutions and all the wickedness that sometimes comes our way. We can handle this. We're just passing through. We're going on to a throne We're not just going to a better place. We're going to a throne where we're going to rule with Christ. This is the essence of what he's saying here. Get into Christ. This is the distinctive which enables us to be loving toward one another and gracious toward those who persecute us. Now, before we leave this, let's answer uh, a difficult question about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. This is one of those really crystal clear verses. Everybody should understand exactly what this means. Verse 19, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Well, sure, I know what that means. There are three uh, basic views. You have four of them given to you in your footnotes in the uh, Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible, but three basic views. One is that this is the preexistent Christ who preached to the spirits in prison, preached to, to Noah and his family, uh, who were in Sheol or in the resting place of the dead. The second view is that it was the ministry of Christ when he died and before he was raised. I'll come back to that one. And the third one is it's post-resurrection. The post-resurrection view that Jesus is preaching to the spirits in prison uh, after his resurrection. Now, I'd like to suggest why I think I'm particularly drawn to number two, and it's because of that phrase in the Apostles' Creed, that so many people ask me about, what does it mean that Jesus descended into hell? 
Well, uh, let me tell you some possible views of that. Uh, his descent into hell could simply be his descent into Sheol, which is the Old Testament word for the resting place of the dead. So he descended into the ground or he descended into the resting place of the dead. That is, Jesus was really dead. Or it could mean that he descended into hell in the sense that he bore the wrath of God. That's what hell is all about, taking the wrath of God. And when he died on the cross, he took the wrath of God. So in that sense, he descended into hell. The third sense, which is probably my favorite, comes from Matthew three, uh, from 1 Peter 3, 18, 19. That is, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, we know that was a mighty victory, not a, not a defeat. When Jesus gave out a roar at the cross, that wasn't a roar like, oh, this is so painful. No, it was a roar like a lion. Because in Matthew, we're told, when he roared, when he gave, when he gave out his life in a, with a deep uh, voice or a loud voice, uh, megalophone uh, is the, the word it's like you'd have for megaphone, like he had a megaphone when he died. It's right after that Matthew records for us that some of the old saints were raised out of their, their tombs. And, when, and Matthew records that the curtain in the temple was rent from top to bottom like God would tear it, not bottom to top like man would tear it, making access to the Holy of Holies. So when Jesus died, immediately in Matthew's Gospel, we're shown how powerful reconciliation broke out between us and God. And so there was a mighty victory at the cross. And some scholars speculate, and I, I like their speculation, that at that point, you wonder, what did Jesus do between his death and resurrection? Where did his spirit go? Because we know he, he, he's, he had his spirit. Where did it go? And I suggest this may be the answer. He went down even to hell to, to, to proclaim the glory of his cross and the great victory he had won over evil. And he went to the spirits in prison, those from Noah's day, and he proclaimed the judgment of God that here it is. God is in His Son, Jesus Christ, and He is King, and He is ruling over the power of darkness. And so I believe that what Peter is saying to us, look, enter into Christ and realize that you're in, you're in a movement that is going up and that is expanding, even when you feel like all the world is coming on your shoulders. Don't lose heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this marvelous text. And we pray that it would have its motivating power upon each one of us. That we would be the ones who love the brotherhood. We would be the ones who are gracious toward those who are not loving toward us. All because we fear you and love you. And we are in Christ and celebrating our liberation from all the powers of darkness. Have your way with us today, O Lord. Make us loving men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.